the third window from the right two flights up by the third window from the right Hello and welcome to episode 5 of the Third Window Films podcast. My name is Ben and with me is... Adam from Third Window Films. <laughs> and uh, yeah, this podcast is a celebration of Third Window Films from the perspective of the excitable fan, being me, and the tireless efforts of the man himself, being Adam. Yo, yo, yo. Uh, how yo, yo, yo. So last month, if you listened in, we were joined by the mighty Tom Mess to talk about Shinya Tsukamoto and the, the release of his 1991 fantasy horror comedy, Hiroko the Goblin. Um, and yeah, at the end of that episode, I asked Tom if he had anything to say about Sogoishi's Crazy Thunder Road, which was obviously the film we were talking about this month. Um, and his response was pretty epic. Um, I don't think I have it verbatim, but it was along the lines of, uh, if Tetsuo was an epoch-making film, then Crazy Thunder Road was that times two. And this is one of the holy grails of Japanese cinema. So if you're listening to this, buy it, buy it, or shut up and never watch another Japanese film again. <laughs> uh, so yeah, Adam and I both decided we would be crazier than The Thunder Road itself if we didn't ask him back. So, ladies and gentlemen, we are thrilled to say hello once again to Mr. Tom Mess. Hi, Tom. Hello there. <laughs> Glad to continue to not shut up. And speak oh, about well, Japanese yes. films. I mean, yeah. We when we last spoke, um, I was excited to watch Crazy Thunder Road, but uh, I hadn't seen any of Sogorishi's films. Or, I mean, I suppose now we should be referring to him as a uh, is it Gakuryu? Yeah, that's his current. That's his current sort of uh, screen screen name or work name or pseudonym. Yeah. It's actually, the Sogoishi already was a pseudonym. His real, his real first name is Toshihiro. That's the name he was oh. he was given at birth. Uh, so the Sogo was already a, a sort of a nickname. And then a few years ago, he changed it again to Gakuryu to sort of express that he was entering a new phase as a as an artist and a filmmaker. Amazing. And yes, as I said, I hadn't seen any of his films, but now. After <laughs> a good couple of weeks of research, I've I've seen about twelve, I think. Um, luckily, because most of them are on YouTube, strangely enough, um, in one way, form, or another. And yeah, it's it's been a wild journey to say the least. Um, one thing I will say before we get started is I was just so astonished at how every single one of these twelve films felt really unique. Um, not just in you know style and aesthetic and cinematography, but in like how he writes the scripts and how he gets different performances from his actors. Um, yeah, and I, I you know I kept thinking, oh, he he reminds me so much of Sukumoto, like with the cyberpunk roots and you know the um, uh, kind of genre pushing or envelope pushing. Um, cinematography but at the same time when you watch a Tsukamoto film you can kind of tell straight out the gate that you're watching a Tsukamoto film or at least I, I feel you can whereas with with uh, Ishisogos or or Gakuryu he every time I was like this looks like a different filmmaker 
And obviously there was a very clear line in the sand where he changed over and changed his name. But I mean, every single film from Angel Dust to August in the Water to Tokyo Blood to The Crazy Family, they all look, feel, sound, everything completely different. Anyway, I'm babbling. I'll shut up. <laughs> I'll, let, I'll let you two chat. Um, yeah. What are your feelings about this guy, this incredible filmmaker? I, th- I think he's one, he is definitely one of the most important and most ex- certainly for a, for a, for a good part of his career most exciting filmmakers to come out of japan um and i'm i mean all time yeah. um as we as we mentioned briefly at the end of the, the the previous episode crazy thunder road in particular really changed the game for japanese cinema and it was not it was it was his student film basically he made it with university equipment sort of as an idea to do it as his graduation project, even though he never ended up graduating. Um, but even and that's, even before that, he had already been noticed by the mainstream film industry and had already co-directed uh, a major studio film, uh, Panic, Panic in High School, which was a remake of his own 8mm short. Yeah, and a, a remake of his own 8mm amateur debut became a major studio picture. In 1978, wow. and this is when he was still in still in university, basically before Crazy Thunder. And so Crazy Thunder Roads came out. It came out through the Toei Studio, you know, one of the major, one of the five major film studios in Japan. And he had made that film as a student with university equipment and with a crew of his friends and 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 like-minded buddies, essentially, and. That film was really quite successful, and it allowed all those other amateur filmmakers in Japan, because you know, with eight millimeter equipment and occasionally sixteen millimeter equipment becoming fairly available and affordable through the sixties and especially the seventies, there were a lot of these young people that loved films and wanted to make films but couldn't get into the film industry anymore because the studios weren't hiring. And so you get this sort of movement from the late 60s and then really picking up steam in the 70s of these young amateur filmmakers, uh, films that they tend to refer to as, as Jishu Ega. And uh, there's a wonderful video essay by my good friend Jasper Sharp on the, on the disc about this phenomenon. So if you're interested, I should, you should definitely check that out. And uh, there, there was just so much of that going on that at some point, this uh, a magazine called PIA, which is like a cultural events listing magazine, decided they would start a film festival specifically catering to these kinds of filmmakers. So they would run a competition every year, selecting the best of that year's crop of amateur filmmakers. And then these would be judged by professional major name directors. And the winner would get a budget to make a feature film. Hmm. This was happening from 77, 78. And uh, Ishii won, I think, the first or second edition with uh, Attack Hakata Street Gang, which is sort of like a Yakuza movie, kind of a, a take on the Kinji Fukasaku, you know, Battles Without Honor, that sort of style. And so, you know, we're talking about basically kids wanting to make movies and just grabbing what's available, which happens to be like their dad's 8mm camera. And then getting discovered. And then in Ishii's case with Crazy Thunder Roads, 
getting nationwide distribution through a major studio and then having a hit film. And then all the other ones sit up and I can do that too. That's wonderful. This is possible. Okay, that's great. Yeah. I d yeah, the only thing I can relate it to is when I was first getting into cinema, I was um, really into the films of Kevin Smith. <laughs> you know, I don't know if you know him. He did Clarks and More Rats and Chasing Amy and all of this. And I remember thinking like, wow, like this is just a guy making films with his friends, about his friends, and I can do that. And then as I grew up listening to him like start podcasting, he was talking about like Richard Linklater's Slacker was the film that he saw that made him think, oh, you know, <laughs> and I was like, it all, you know, snowballs from there so yeah it's always inspiration upon inspiration and I think one of the things about Sogorishi that uh, blew my mind so much is the filmmakers that I consider to be the most accomplished and my favorites like Tsukamoto and Kyoshi Kurosawa and uh, Takashi Miike I'm watching Ishii's films going holy shit they were inspired by him this is the guy who like kicked it off and again so it's just this i've been living my life as a fan of uh, these films without knowing that of, of this guy's work and i guess that's a good place for you to jump in adam because you have now released this film out in the west for the first time you know in history and there's all of this hype now around of sogorishi and i get it every day someone messaging me saying when can we see more of these films and how do we get these films out there and I think the sad truth of it is it's it's impossible, right? Pretty much. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I get the same mails every day. Every time I post something about Crazy Thunder Road, people say, well, why don't you release Crazy Family? Or why, don't, why haven't you released this and that? And, you know, actually, if you look at that peer generation, which uh, I loved as well, you know, there's uh, uh, Tezuka Makoto came from there and obviously Tsukamoto Shinya and Yamoto Masashi. You know, Sogoishi was, um, you know, maybe just too punk, Compared to the others, I think they're a little more intelligent about the way that movie working, movie making works in a, in a in um maybe in a copyright type of sense and in a business sort of sense. You know, Tezuka Makoto, all of them at the beginning were when they were making these sort of very low low budget student films, including Tsukamoto Shinya and films like um um uh, what's the Phantom of Regular Size. They all had music issues problems because they just like mm -hmm. threw in any music they liked, and it's like, well, we're students, who cares about it? You know, they're obviously not thinking of a bigger picture, and you wouldn't at that age, I guess. But then Tsukamoto Shinya, Tezuka Makoto, they all started thinking about maybe a little more in the long run and the business side, and started handling things like music and music rights and clearances and these sort of things in a, in a more professional way. Yet Ishisogo never really thought about that aspect of um, of the filmmaking side. And therefore, a lot of his movies, including Crazy Thunder Road, have so many problems with music rights that they've never been able to get out of Japan. And, uh, you know, Japan is quite different in the way that it clears music rights, mainly because of this sort of Yakuza-type company called Jazzrak, who are, are, if you read up about them, they're, they're incredibly dodgy uh, company. And uh, they're, they're almost like the Yakuza, in essence. Uh, but... Um, yeah, these music rights issues were such a big thing, especially for international side. And Crazy Thunder Road always had these issues and Crazy Family has them as well. And there are just so many music rights issues with these films on top of other issues to do with, like, for example, copyright or, or the production companies of the films going bankrupt or this and that. So, you know, of that sort of group of filmmakers that came out around the same time, Ishii Sogo is the one that, you know, it's a pity because he has all these great films that just, it's so hard to get them 
out of Japan, uh, especially nowadays when more time has passed. Uh, Tsukamoto's always got the, bought the copyright back on most of them and and has the rights uh, to sell on. But um, Ishisogo films, yeah, they're all sort of like sort of in limbo. Is there anything that can be done around that, or is it just a waiting game now? It's just a case of you know the, there's no one who contractually owns it, but it, it's unable to sell on as well. I mean, it's yes, obviously clearing music rights can be done and it was what we did this we in this case and it, the reason why we I, I was able to do it was to raise enough money for to clear the rights by um also finding other distributors such as rapid eye movies in germany who would buy the film or put money towards clearing these rights but in some instances for example like uh, august in the water you know it's a film that the original production company has gone bankrupt and the rights to the film in general have just gone in the sort of limbo state. And, you know, it's, it's very hard, mainly also the fact that I think Ishisoga himself is not really so interested in his, maybe his, his back catalog getting out there or remastered and maybe just looking towards what he's doing now. While in, in, for example, with other directors like Tezuka Makoto or Tsukamoto Shinya, they would work a lot with me to help clear the rights. And uh, I think that's also, a big thing uh and it's a yeah it's a it's, it's really a pity is is all i can say is and i you know of course there are things like you know in a crazy family uh it was an atg film and atg films are now handled by toho and toho just a pain in the ass to work with in in general so um it's that's japanese cinema for you i mean all these great films from the past like from teriyama and uh ishisoga and all these other directors that uh have just issues with with either major studios owning the rights or music rights issues or just a, there's basically a lack of interest in working in remastering or getting back catalog titles out there by uh, larger companies. So it's, it's yeah, that's, that's Japanese cinema in a nutshell, apparently. Oh man, it breaks my heart to hear that. Because <laughs> I think somewhat naively after I saw Angel Dust and then August in the Water, I saw them back to back over a weekend and I messaged Adam first thing Monday and said, you know, uh, I've got a bit of money saved up and I would really love to go in with you and try and get these restored and digitized and out there, you know, and somewhat naively expecting him to get, you know, excited about it. And he was like, mate, you know, if I could, I would, but <laughs> it's so much more complicated than you possibly know. So, yeah, yeah, August in the Water, I know I've been trying. And also my, my friend of mine who actually did the music for um, Kemo no Michi, Love Another Cult, uh, a guy to Onagawa, um, who's a fantastic, he, he did the music also for Electric Dragon 80,000 Volts and uh, made all the music for Tadunobu Asano's band a few years ago. Um, and he, yes, uh, would love for, for August in the Water to get out because a lot of people love the soundtrack for that. And it's a fantastic soundtrack. And he was contacted by some sound, some uh, record companies in various in America and in Europe who wanted to put out the soundtrack to the movie. But uh, because the movie itself has all these issues behind it, it's, it's very hard for him to get this soundtrack that that he put so much work and effort into out there, even with all these offers for it, so it's a, uh, it's just one of these uh, yeah complicated things uh, with the the film committee system of Japan and uh, the way they don't really future proof their films. Yeah. Oh man. Well, look, let's not uh, start this too glumly. Let's let's celebrate what we do have, which is this amazing release of Crazy Thunder Road. Um, now, of course, Tom, I watched the film, loved it, and then straight away rewound it. <laughs> Uh, started it all over again with your commentary and uh, yeah, just thought it was awesome. I think, uh, yeah, there's no point in me banging on about it too much as you, you are really the, um, the expert here. 
but I was just so um, kind of blown away, not just by how polished is probably the wrong word, but you know how how successful the film was in its production, but how smart it was and advanced in terms of how it progresses from like this almost exploitative biker film to a kind of revolutionary like human drama to then like this insane you know Mad Max style <laughs> uh, street battle with like explosions and rockets and stuff like that. I was just like blown away that this is ostensibly a student film. Um, so yeah, without I don't really know what question I'm asking here, but I just guess yeah. Please please go on. Tell us about this incredible I mean, film. It's you know it's it's this film shows the genius the genius of Sogo Ishii really, especially mm-hmm. in that period. I mean he was so. I think when he started making films already, he was very driven, and um, he he really wanted to put something out there. I mean he's from the from the, literally from the punk generation. And he's from uh, from Fukuoka on the island of Kyushu, which is one of the main centers of punk rock bands in Japan during that period, late seventies, early eighties. Mm-hmm. And so he was he was surrounded by he, he wasn't just surrounded by by these guys. He was one of these guys. He was really in that scene. And he tried he tried music a bit by uh, you know himself. It didn't really work out well for him. And so he found. Uh, essentially cinema as his as his tool of expression but the the spirit is the same as as these punk musicians so you know the camera was his instrument basically um so when you watch all those early films and uh, crazy thunder road is perhaps the, the the peak example of it you get this amazing spirit where it's not just an issue of uh, you know picking up picking up a camera and DIYing it, but there being an intelligence behind it and an artistic vision, as well as uh, uh, you know a clear idea of uh, this is wrong. This is what's wrong with with the society around me, and I'm going to show that in my own particular way. And then, of course, there is you know the really unique genius of of Ishii at that time. Where he could make this really uh, super entertaining, enthralling storyline around uh, those ideas that he wanted to express and what he saw happening around him in society, and then make this really amazing film about it. And it was—it's you know, like like a lot of the the punk stuff. It was you know, friends getting together and doing the very best they could do and being really motivated to do it. And, you know, whether that was uh, something like the Sex Pistols in the UK or the, the Ramones in, in the US or uh, Sogo Ishii picking up a camera in, in, in Japan. You know, it all, it all, they all share that same mentality, that same drive and spirit. But I think um, just going back to my uh, comparison earlier with, with Kevin Smith, right? He would say that he wrote a film about the place where he worked and he would film it in that, you know, convenience store at night. So he could, he had free location. He used his friends. So there was no acting or, or, or budget on actors. Um, and the only thing that they had to pay for was the film. Basically they rented the cameras and they, they had the film um, to have the kind of ambition of what this film does at that early stage is just mind boggling to me. Like how, yeah, like you said, you have to be so creative, but you also have to be so confident and cocksure 
<laughs> to to think you're going to film in the street with vehicles and have explosions and for it to work. As well, well being as young, does. being young helps, I guess. Yeah, for being sure. Being young and impetuous and maybe a little bit naive, but that was that wasn't the only thing. I just mentioned earlier the the panic in high school major studio remake that was two yeah. years before Crazy Thunder Road, and Ishii got really burned on that because right. Nikatsu, the studio that that did the remake didn't trust this really young amateur filmmaker with a full-on studio picture. And so they assigned one of their action veterans to him as as an assistant director. And as a result, because this guy was so experienced and really like a studio hand working with a studio crew, he was sort of pushed out of his own picture, Ishii. Right. And um, so he that that whole experience was quite frustrating for him. I mean, it's an interesting film, and there's definitely some touches of, of Ishii's style in the movie, but it's a far more conventional sort of like youth drama than anything that Ishii was doing at the time. And so I think a lot of that frustration um, he channeled into making Crazy Thunder Road, like really sh- trying to show what he what he could do and what he really wanted to do, and being able to do that with no compromises. Yeah. And then yeah, there's the fact, really, you know, like you just mentioned, I mean, uh, you know, the bikers in, in Craziest on the Road, for the most part, were real bikers. You know, not the, not the main actors, but, you know, the guys in the background and, you know, the guys who are actually riding the motorcycles. They were real, they were real biker gangs. Sure. I, I mean, that really comes across. And um, having just recently seen um, uh, His Motorbike, Her Island, um, the Obashi film, um, I really loved that film, but the biker scenes kind of made me laugh a little bit because it felt very much like this fantastical kind of side of the biker the experience. Whereas this, it was like they're super aggressive, like how they're riding and how it's shot. And it was really exhilarating um, without trying to sound too, you know, um, hyperbolic. Like it's, I was watching it kind of wide eyed, like, wow, this is, this is crazy how he's filming this and capturing this energy of what it would have been like to be in these bike gangs, you know, and having all that power and over the streets. Yeah. It was, it's hard to be hyperbolic about this film. I mean, <laughs> if you, you can, you know, you can try to be hyperbolic about crazy down the road, but the film actually delivers this stuff. You know, it is it, even compared to, you, you know, the Michael Bay's and the, the the what have yous of Hollywood action cinema of the past twenty years or so. You look at Crazy Thunder Road, and it's still impressive the way it's shot, the way it's cut. Um, you know the energy of the whole thing. Um, it's it is it is just very 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 good and very very exciting. <laughs> yeah. What about you, Adam? Is this is this one of the films that got you into to Japanese film, or did you come to this quite late, like me? No, I mean, I I first got into Japanese film when I was, you know, 13, 14 with like the uh, Suzuki Seiji and the, uh, um, that sort of generation of 60s filmmaking. But I guess, you know, I forget, you know, I got into Ishii Sogo maybe when I was uh, in my late teens, probably around that time. But I think I've appreciated it more afterwards because of the fact that um, that sort of peer generation of Japanese filmmakers that came out of that time that generation of sort of the energy that, that we, we talk about has been lacking a lot after that. And if you look at Japan itself, that late 70s, early 80s was very raw. And, uh, you know, that punk era, a lot of 
you know, friends that I have that were from that generation all were doing drugs and all that sort of stuff. And after that, you know, the sort of the concept of drug culture. And if we, if we look at people like Toshiaki Toyoda, like it became so clean in Japan after that. And, you know, of course, uh, in, in, in other countries, in England and all that, you had the punks. But afterwards, there still is that sort of like, you know, raw nature of and dirt that you find within culture and cinema that has carried on and music especially but japan after it went into that sort of bubble economy and then it went into this sort of super clean and safe japan that it is now and it's sort of looking at japanese cinema and japan now it's very boring to me i'm living in japan and watching japanese films and watching especially young japanese filmmakers nowadays it's all boring films about like oh i broke up with a girl and uh, you know i don't know it's 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 there's a lot of that sort of like very boring uh life that you see in japan and even during the pandemic when you you'd expect uh, a little more a little different uh, a little more vibrancy and a little more energy to come out of uh out of the the, the tough times i guess because japan hasn't been as affected as other places the films that also come out from that are still a bit to be honest a bit bit, bit boring and plain because japanese kids nowadays are, are uh just a bit like apathetic and and, and weak and uh they just bore the, bore the hell out of me so when i look going back to that sort of like that that generation of peer filmmakers and, and the energy that came from the films and especially obviously crazy thunder road it really makes me i mean sort of nostalgic and and really hope for a generation like that to come back again so we can have a little more directors like ishisogo young directors with energy and with uh passion and with um yeah, uh, yeah. Energy and passion is the best way to, to describe them, and, and uh, yeah, I just, I just love that generation, and I've, I've been hoping for something else to come through then ever since. It's interesting what you said about how you know, oh, these these new filmmakers are so boring. They do films like, oh, I broke up with my girlfriend. Like one of the catalysts of all the craziness that happens in this film is, you know, one of the leaders of the biker gang decides he wants to live a calmer life and and ends up breaking up with his girlfriend. So it's not saying that you know you can't tackle the same subjects it's just doing it in an exciting way right <laughs> yes i guess we're putting it like that yes of course uh but i guess uh, the, the, it was a very exciting way that they handled things back then and it it is not now and, and i think you know that the, the drug culture also had a big thing to do with it uh you know it was a, a big drug culture in, around that time and i mean just that is the complete opposite uh, nowadays. It's one of the cleanest societies you can imagine. And yes, going back to Toshiaki Toda, you know, even a little bit, and you, you get put in jail for for, and your life ruined. So it's a. I don't want to start talking about drugs in a positive sense, but I, it did. Uh, yeah, it brought something. Uh, yeah, raw to um, to people. I guess uh, at that that time, uh, it was a really really very energetic period of of, of Japanese culture and films. Yeah, sure. Well, Tom, one thing I've just noticed straight out of the gate is how um, knowledgeable you are on on the filmmaker himself. Um, and it was a question I was going to ask anyway, but just before we started recording, I asked my Twitter followers if anyone had any questions for, for you or Adam. And uh, Robert Edwards at, at This Is Rob Edward said, uh, could you ask Tom for me, now that Ishii is beginning to see greater distribution, if he has thought about doing a book on Ishii's work? we are sorely lacking a definitive piece of writing on Ishii and I would love to see one. So I wondered if that's something that's crossed your mind. I think we are sorely lacking uh, definitive writing on a lot of Japanese filmmakers. <laughs> and, uh, <Sure>. <laughs> <laughs> uh, having written a couple of books like this, um, 
it's, I would say it's not terribly likely that I'm going to do another one in that particular vein. Right. Uh, I've had the same question even offers about doing a book on, on uh, Shion Sono. Uh, in that case, it's because I'm not a huge fan. I like some of his films, but definitely not all of them. In the case of Ishii, I really love Ishii's work. I love Ishii. I really love Ishii's work up until up until the mid '80s. That's just sort of the period where he disappeared from feature filmmaking for uh, almost ten years, and then he re reappeared with Angel Dust, and from there through, let's say, Gojo Electric Dragon, which was sort of like a, a uh, a diptych in a way mm -hmm. I find them really really interesting and some of the films I really like a lot but the period that's come after that I'm not a huge fan of so that's already a question of, of motivation aside from the amount of time and effort I would have to put into that yeah. which, which never pays itself back in terms of the sales figures of the book uh, of a book of that kind right. so I think it's a, it's a slightly similar issue to like doing a, an updated version of my book on Tsukamoto you know it's just so the, it, there would be so much work going into it that I know it would never pay itself back and I'm certainly at a different point in my life now than I was uh, let's say how long has it been almost 20 years ago when uh, my book on the first book on Mike came out hmm. so to actually devote that amount of time and, and energy to writing a book is, is not quite as uh, realistic uh, at my current age and current living conditions, you know. <laughs> it's, it's, it's the same as what we just talked about with Ishii's early films, you know. You're, you're young and, and foolish and you have time and you have passion and you just do it. And, it, and it, you know, it can result in these amazing things that you basically can never repeat again. It's also yeah. a similar situation to film festivals, you know. You, the past, certainly the past 20 years, we've had so many of these Asian film festivals and Japanese film festivals coming up, and within five years, they disappear again. And there's a couple of, of course, great exceptions, such as the Nippon Connection Film Festival. But it's the same situation. These festivals are all started by young people, often students, who have a lot of time on their hands, who have a great passion for something they're doing, and don't really have to worry about that many responsibilities like paying the rent or starting a family or those sort of things that's still quite far away from them and then you know but after a while that's you know they graduate and have to start thinking about adult life and you know it's these things just have it's just you know it's just the circumstances and uh, much as i love uh, a good a great part of ishii's work and and the motivation is not really there to to tackle a full direct director monograph or biography, but that would you know that would go for basically any director you could mention. It's not likely I would do something like that now. I think that's very fair. It makes a lot of sense, and I th it's something that I I wouldn't say worry about, but I'm aware of it w with this podcast. Is that I'm coming to this as a, from the perspective of a fan, and you know there's not been a film that Adam sent me that I haven't sat down and enjoyed, but I'm sure one day it will happen. And we'll have to come on the podcast to promote this said film. And I'll have to be like, I don't really like this, you know, and it, it'll be quite a weird situation. Um, luckily Adam's very honest and he's got no qualms of saying, yeah, I thought this was shit <laughs> or uh, it wasn't for me. So hopefully it's a nice balance. Um, 
maybe we could then, if you don't mind, uh, just you were talking about you had, he's had highs and lows in, in your opinion. If we can just go through um, the fortnight that I've had with his films and, and get some opinions from you both. And I know just speaking to Adam off, off mic earlier, he was saying a lot of these films I haven't seen for 20 odd years. Is that right? Yes. Uh, unfortunately, you know, I, I wish I, I had the time uh to go back and watch a lot of this stuff and especially it probably a lot of the time you know i'd i'd be looking at it with fresh eyes because i it's you know i'm a lot older now and it's a lot of time has passed but i did watch some there was a, a retrospective of his works um a couple or, or or three four years ago in japan and uh i did get to see august in the water again on, on 35 um and a few other ones but but yes i think the, the majority of them it has been way too long and i tried to catch up and watch uh, crazy family again and uh, you know nowadays i've got so much on and uh it took about three or four days to watch three quarters of it and uh hmm. that's how it is nowadays unfortunately yeah i've been there luckily yeah i just use the evenings now try and stay awake with caffeine and watch a film a night but yeah so after i watched crazy thunder road i was like right let's get stuck in and i, I was like let's go um with the next big one which was the crazy family and i started it and I was I was enjoying it. I wouldn't say I was blown away. It was a lot more traditional, I felt, than Crazy Thunder Road. And I thought it was an interesting way to, for him to go. And then that final act kicked in. And I was like, holy shit. I had no idea what was going on. Uh, it was just pure pandemonium. And then obviously when the film finished and I was kind of sitting there putting it all in line in my head. I was like, it is, it's like a, a deconstruction of the modern family in Japan, much like, you know, Mike's visit to Q or Kurosawa's Tokyo Sonata, or even um, Toshiaki Toyoda's hanging garden that we, we watched recently, Adam. Um, but it has this, this really unique spin that takes it in this super, like almost like horror genre slasher film at the end. It was just astonishing. Um, yeah, and so I, I, I was like, wow, I am all in on this journey now with Sogarishi. I'm like, you know, I can't wait to see everything he's got. So yeah, Tom, I don't know, what, what are your feelings about the, the crazy family? Oh, it's it's wonderful. Um, I mean, yeah. I completely second your your opinion on the film. Um, it's it's an amazing piece, and um, it it gets forgotten a bit because it's an ATG production. The ATG, the Art Theatre Guild, was sort of in the late 60s started out as sort of an alternative uh, to the major studio distribution system, even though, as Adam mentioned, you know, Toho, the major, major studio financed basically half the company, which is why they own most of the rights of the films now. Um, but, you know, it was for Toho, it was also a way to, to, to discover new markets, potential new markets. And so, uh, yeah, ATG started out distributing foreign art films and then started um, co-producing Japanese films by in the beginning by really major names that had gone independent like Nagisa Oshima and you know the new wave directors you know if they had projects that they wanted to do they could come to ATG and ATG would put up half the budget and then the filmmaker through their own company had to find the other half and um, so the heyday of that was really the you know the late 60s and into the early 70s and so ATG is sort of synonymous kind of with, with the Japanese new wave. Hmm. And about then, late 70s and into the 80s, uh, there's new management of the company and they intentionally start looking for, for younger directors, so sort of like the generation that came out of this Jishuega, Pia Film Festival, amateur filmmaking um, circle. 
and um, then you sort of see like um, where it doesn't really fit pe existing, you sort of like the existing gatekeepers um, image of what an ATG film should be. And so already in like, you know, historiography and, and film criticism, uh, especially looking from outside Japan, um, foreign, foreign writers um, sort of gave that period kind of short shrift. Right. And I think that's one reason why, uh, um, for example, Crazy Family is not as as present as it should be um, in in the way we look at Japanese cinema and Japanese film history. But that, I think that's true for Sogoishi as a whole. You know, um, yeah, he he came out of the fact that he came out of punk, and he was you know he had this aggressive style that people hadn't really seen, basically hadn't seen that sort of level of uh, dynamism in camera work and editing since the very early days of silent film, you know, Daisuke Ito sort of pioneered that style in the 1920s. <laughs> and, um, you know, it's, it's, it was something that the people who writing about Japanese cinema and deciding which Japanese films ought to be seen globally didn't really fit with their worldview and with their view of what Japanese cinema ought to be. And so uh, it's, that's one reason why, you know, it's, that's also, I think, one reason why, aside from the very practical reasons that Adam mentioned, such as music rights, etc., one reason why we haven't seen much of that until very recently. And I think Crazy Family, uh, yeah, sort of, it, it was really popular in Germany, I think. It got distribution in Germany, theatrical distribution. There was, I think there even was a DVD release of it some 15, 20 years ago. And um, and then that's that popularity of that film led to Ishii working with the German noise band Einstutz and the Neubauten, where he made the the Hamburgingen Half Human album, Mensch, sort of like half fiction film, half concert film, which is sort of like a, a cult film in itself for Ishii. So um, yeah, really important film, really fascinating film, very exciting film, very, um, <laughs> and I think still very. Uh, um topical film i mean there's there's still so. there's still they're still building huge suburban housing complexes in japan i don't know where they, where they find the inhabitants anymore because you know who, who goes to live in the suburbs it's just that's that's a model from 20 30 years ago if not more so it's still very topical yeah so it's uh yeah would be nice if people could more people could could watch that film. You know. I was going to say, just like your commentaries, you've just made me want to watch it all over again now. <laughs> I've just well, it's that. it's you know it's about the the the, the falsehoods of the suburban family dream. You know, it's Japan yeah. switching from the old, you know, three generations under one roof family family unit to becoming the nuclear family. You know, parents and children, usually two children, living in a suburban home and that being presented as the dream for which father just you know never comes home again because he has to work day and night to pay off the mortgage yeah it's, a, it's an amazing work i actually jumped quite far ahead for the next one because um i, I just couldn't get hold of many of his 80s films um and the you next jump, one you jump is... sort of far ahead with going to crazy family because in between of course is burst city but the, yes true and <laughs> that Bur was not Burst a good window films release yeah Burst City was one yeah that got released right well, that yeah was Arrow, 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 did, Arrow, yes. Arrow did yeah yeah wow 
No, I'll have to. I'll continue on my journey post podcast, and I'll have to pick that one up. But no, I got. Uh, I found on YouTube there was um, uh, Tokyo Blood, which is uh, an anthology film consisting of four experimental shorts, all done by Ishii, and they're basically um, connected by the theme of like entrapment in Tokyo's kind of landscape, and you know the the characters' desire to escape this this megalopolis. <laughs> um, and I just thought it was flipping brilliant. Like, again, straight out of the gate, I was like, this is totally different from anything else he's done. It starts off, one of the sections is called Street Noise, which is like a salary man who just starts running um, and trying to get out. And it, again, it's really evocative of the early work of Tsukamoto, but it, it just felt so fresh and exciting and just brilliant. So I thought I knew what I was getting myself into again. And then the next one comes along and it's Bicycle, and it's this really slow, beautiful, like almost poetic, uh, slow journey through the city on bicycles. There's two young girls who, I mean, really heavy stuff. One is is pregnant, young and out of wedlock. And the other one uh, has contracted AIDS. And they're just talking about their situations and, and how they can make their lives better. And I was just like, wow, the change of pace in this and style is insane. And then I kind of realized what he was doing was using these shorts as a showcase for what he can do and and maybe maybe just trialing them out and then you've got hole which was like this weird as thing where a guy wakes up from a coma and the only word he says is hole so the doctors are trying to take him around the city to try and find out what this hole is he's talking about and see if they can piece together what had happened um it just doesn't end up where you'd expect it at all um and then the heart of stone which is the final piece was kind of like a 10 minute TED talk documentary on like essentially what became August in the water, you know, with um, lots of cosmic energy in the earth and the, and the pain points and how, and healing energy and all of that, which is just so fascinating. And again, I, I realize it's just me blabbering on now, but yeah, I was just so impressed with this film. <laughs> um, so yes, same again, over to you guys. What, have you both seen it and what are your thoughts? Yeah, I, I have I have seen it. Sorry, Adam. Uh, I have I have seen it, um, um, and it's true. Each each of those episodes is uh, is really quite completely different, and each of those episodes sort of either refers back or or flashes forward to to other works by Ishii. And uh, like you say, August in the Water is or, is already in there. Um, there's uh, there's the the you know like you said the Tsukamoto influence it's sort of like ishii saying i influenced you so now i'm gonna steal some from you you know <laughs> and uh whole whole is also sort of like already has a sort of angel dust you know sort of hypnotic um sort of unsettling sort of atmosphere to it uh but also has crazy family sort of surrealism as well yeah. And uh, yeah, Ishii, uh, you know, like Tsukamoto, Ishii is sort of a, a filmmaker where you, if you look at his films, especially if you look at them in sequence, hmm. even if you leave a few gaps in between, you can see this really interesting evolution happening. Where he goes, you know, gradually goes from this fascination to that fascination and trying out a little bit of this and then a little bit of that and a little bit of more of that comes back in and sort of takes over for a while. And um, yeah. And Tokyo Blood was actually one of one of several. It was actually made for TV, and it was right. one of several standalone episodes, each by a different director. I think there's six of them or so. 
and uh, produced by uh, the Wow Wow channel and by uh, uh, Mr. Takenori Sento, who would later become the producer of Gojo and Electric Dragon 80,000 volts for, uh, for Ishii. Amazing. Yeah, I haven't seen Gojo, but uh, we'll definitely get to Electric Dragon. <laughs> um, yeah, the, the next one is my favorite by far. And I, I, to say I was flawed is an understatement. And it is Angel Dust. Um, I just, I didn't know anything about it. I just knew that it was in 1994. It was done straight after Tokyo Blood. And I thought, I'll just put it on. And then I just sat in awe for t- two hours uh, with my jaw open at first of how it was made three three years before Kurosawa's Cure, which is considered, you know, one of the most um, definitive Japanese genre films of, of the last, you know, few decades. And it predates it. And it, it, it basically is the same film in a lot of ways. It, it tackles the same subjects. Um, I also saw a lot of uh, Shion Sono's Suicide Club in there with, you know, mind control and everything. And I was just blown away by how just how amazing it was and you know the second it was finished I was like it was such a slow burn it was so well measured it was really haunting like scene to scene like you said Tom it's like got this haunting atmosphere that just like burrows into you and it's like ominous dread that just like fills up but like the score as well which is one of the best I'd heard in years um the shot compositions, the use of the frame, everything, the whole thing. And that's when I messaged Adam really excitedly and being like, we have to get this film out. This needs to be seen by people. And yet again, hands are tied. Nothing we can do. But yeah, <laughs> I this wish. is going to go. I wish. Yeah, exactly. But th- <laughs> this is going to go down in my top 10 of all time, I think. I mean, I've still only seen it once, so I have to watch, revisit it. But the effect on the, the effect it had on me cannot be understated. It was just astonishing. I wish I could release it, honestly, you know, I mean, like, like, like Crazy Family as well, you know, I wish that was one that I could, I mean, I did actually many years ago, spend about a year trying to, trying to sort it out one way or another, and it just, just was impossible, and um, yeah, I mean, this is another one that uh, the, the production company went, went under, and the rights are, are in limbo, and it's, it's a pity, but you know, I mean, luckily, it did get out there initially, uh, you know, through American releases, and, 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 it got yeah more more than obviously crazy family, but it, it's it's available uh, on DVD somewhere or another. I mean with English subtitles, and therefore available for more people to see. Then, which is good. But I just wish yes, it would be great to revive it and get it out in in on a in high definition. But uh, unfortunately, it's uh, more more. It's just too hard. I mean, I don't want to promote piracy, but there is a, a rip on YouTube at the moment for free. Again, it's not great quality, but for people that really need to or want to see this film, it is out there. I was it's out on it was out released on DVD. So I mean, you know, I'm sure there's enough country. DVD copies. Not not in England, but in in America oh. and uh, in a few countries. So it's was released on DVD with English subtitles, and I've got it on DVD with English subtitles. So it's not impossible to get. Uh, okay, I'll have a look. <laughs> I'm just going to say, Tom, you're being quite quiet. <laughs> For a change? The- no, I just I, would let, I thought I would let Adam speak a little bit. Sure. <laughs> no, I mean, you know, again, again, you know, I can only, I can only echo, echo your words. I mean, I think anyone with a, a bit of knowledge of Japanese cinema of the past few decades immediately sees what you saw, which is that you know it, it predates um, some really important later works, notably Cure, in in, in many ways. 
uh, which you know definitely does not diminish the the, the value of, of Cure or any of the other films. But it really shows that Ishii, you know, as we just said earlier with with the punk films, you know, that he had he had he, you know he had this radar sort of like he picked up these signs and this is going on around me and this is something I need to express. And you know, some people are have those antenna and they just catch that stuff earlier than than most people. Hmm. And um, you know, with with. Uh, uh, with Angel Dust, yeah, he prefigured a lot of. Well, I think Takeshi Kitano, in a certain sense, was also expressing some of that in his films uh, around that time. I think it's already in Violent Cop. Violent Cop to me is a very unsettling, strange film about about loneliness in 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 the big city, you know, mm. in post post bubble Japan, and um, Boiling Point also. So there were a few people that were already expressing that, but I think um, the degree of of synthesis that Kyoshi Kurosawa reached with Cure, um, Ishii was, you know, reached that sort of level already with with Angel Dust, already or almost. Yeah. I think I was just so impressed with how meticulously uh, constructed each scene was. And again, it's just something I hadn't quite noticed from his work before that, which is why I was so like, right, this filmmaker reinvents himself almost every film. That's what I felt anyway. Mm. And then I went straight on to 1995's August in the Water after that, which I get all I knew of that is that's the one that most people cited his as their favorite of his. Um, and again, I, I was just blown away by it. I won't say it affected me quite as much as Angel Dust, but... Um, yeah, the, just the whole science fiction fantasy element of it was incredible. And the way it, it perfectly encapsulates like this story of all young love, you know, but then takes it this really cosmic way that just you, you could never predict. Um, and again, it kind of reminded me of uh, Makoto Shinkai's work, like um, Your Name and Weathering With You. And, you know, these films that again now are, they broke through, they broke through the zeitgeist and, you know, they've, they've, reached anime into the mainstream a bit more and you know things like that but then seeing that he was actually tackling these these issues back in 95 and yeah just amazing and how the second half of the film just just goes wild and <laughs> yeah i realize now in retrospect that a lot of this episode is me just going to be gushing about film by film by film but um well there's actually yeah. there's actually a bit of a missing link there um, even okay. before angel dust which is a short film called master of shiatsu Right, and it's uh, that's the, the, his first sort of like really hypnotic film where he tries to find a, like an audiovisual expression of you know um, uh, meditation and uh, sort of higher consciousness states that you can get in through, for example, you know, undergoing shiatsu massage, etc. Right. And uh, I think after a very frustrating period of you know almost ten years of not being able to make feature films, uh, he had a lot of that. Well, before it was, he released it as anger, and I think at that point he was trying to find different channels. Also, I think also because he was getting a bit older, um, he was trying to find different channels to to let that out into his creativity. So he began to he began looking at meditation and and massage and sort of like new agey sort of uh, themes and and methods. And Master of Shiatsu is the first film in which he tries to really look at the ways to express that in in a movie. 
and uh, it's uh, it's not on YouTube, but is uh, uh, it's on one of the, and so it's on Daily Motion actually. You can probably oh forget God. about Daily Motion these days, but you can you should be able to still find it on there. Oh, good to know. That'll be viewing tonight then. <laughs> Wonderful. Um, okay, so then after that, I went straight on to Labyrinth of Dreams in 1997, which, <laughs> again, felt completely different to anything I'd seen from him before, but was no less just absolutely mind-blowing. It was kind of like he he's like the master of minimal plot, but like maximum impact in terms of like the tone and the feeling of what you're getting on screen. And, you know, it, it it's... Considering it was made in 97, it really genuinely felt to me like a film that came out of the 60s, just in the the, the aesthetic and how it was paced and edited and colorized and everything. And um, the the films it actually reminded me the most of were uh, Yasuzo uh, Masamura's Red Angel and Blind Beast, you know, the kind of... um, uh, juxtaposition of, like, love and death and, and... you know the killer but the mystery behind it and how it's entangled in this this romance um just was just astonishing again and you know it's the sort of film that i would have thought everyone would rave about but again it's just it's it's hardly seen if you go on letterboxd i think it's like less, less than a thousand people have logged to seeing it you know out of you know millions and millions of people that use that platform it's just just astonishing to me it's a crime <laughs> Yeah, it's it's fantastic, and you know, when looking at obviously those three films, um, because they sort of fit fit together, sort of in a way, and and, com- and comparing them to, you know, the earlier films of the, the punk era. I mean, uh, you know, I love in Japan. There's a box set that split up the, the the punk eras and the psychedelic eras, and all that. There are there are some DVD box sets that of his works, but um, the the director can can take so many different uh, genres and so many different parts and. And as you said, it seems like a new, uh, it's completely different director or no, like it's such a, such a new fresh for, from a director that, that's, that's almost mastered so many different, different uh, genres. And it's very rare to find uh, a director, especially in, 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 in essence, sort of independent filmmaking to, to take on film so many different genres and so beautifully and so well made and so te- at such a high technical level. I think uh, he really stands out as, as one of the, the few especially contemporary directors has been able to, to do that. And, and, you know, you, yes, you, you, especially as, as you've watched everything in this sort of like short period, I think it probably has the most impact uh, for for you, I think that, so it's, it's great hearing, hearing you talk about them because obviously I've seen these films over such a, a long span of period, a span, a uh, uh, time period, but uh, it's, it's fantastic to hear you, you gosh on them the way you are, because it's, uh, it's, it's, yeah, it's very, it makes me really wish. Just makes me all pissed off that they can't be distributed more. Actually, <laughs> yeah, no, totally. I mean, there was. The, this is a bit awkward actually because I literally just said before how there will become a time where I get sent a film by Third Window Films that I don't really like, and I'll have to say about it. But actually, there is one of his films that I couldn't really get along with, and it's the other one that's been released by Third Window Films. Um, nobody can, nobody so likes that film except for me. Yeah, it's called Isn't Anyone Alive from 2012. Um, and it was the first film where he changed his name from Sogo to Gakuliu. Um And yeah, like 
as terms of a reinvention of himself, I can totally see how it was. But at the same time, I felt like he was almost reinventing himself throughout his entire career. Um, but all I'll say is that the first hour was almost unwatchable for me. I was like, I cannot keep up with what's being said. Uh, the pacing was all over the place. The the way the, the the script was getting delivered was kind of like there was these unnatural rhythms to it that I just couldn't get myself on board with. Um, and then obviously the final act just goes completely bonkers um, and saved it slightly. But yeah, I really, really struggled with that one. And it was just funny how that was... That was the one, the only other one that's been released by Third Window Films, but also the one that really did signpost his his reinvention. Um, yeah. So Adam, let's, it's probably a good place for you to start here, as you say you you actually really like this film. Well, yeah, that, that's also one of the films, that, one of his only films that it wasn't that that complicated to distribute, to be honest. Uh, but I I actually more than anyone else prefer the first half of that film over over the the, the ending, which I know a lot of people like the ending more than the rest of it. I just think it's a wonderful, absurd comedy. And yes, I think it is obviously quite different because it's it's uh, adapted from a stage play by, by Maida Shiro, which, so it's uh, quite different to the, the original screenplays that he was working on with other films. So maybe it's a bit less of a Sogo Ishii or Gakuru Ishii film than, than others because of the, the source material. But, you know... I, 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 yeah, I'd like to hear what what Tom thinks about that film because I know that everyone else seems to seems to hate it, and uh, and um, I don't know why I'm the only person who likes it, but I, it seems I am. Well, I used I used to make this website about Japanese film called Midnight Eye, and then you you can find my review on there, I think, which is, <laughs> which, is which is not positive. Um, no, I oh, mentioned yes. earlier that that you know sort of the Gakuryu sheet period is is I haven't like the single one of the films that he made since the name change and um, isn't anyone alive to me for the first time felt like Ishii was behind the times hmm. rather than ahead of them and perhaps that was the aspect uh, that that sort of displeased me most perhaps <laughs> uh, he's he's always been you know, it's like uh, it's like David Bowie up until the early '80s. You know, he's a, always a, a, several steps ahead of the game, but then suddenly he's doing what everybody else has already done. And I'm a huge David Bowie fan, by the way. And uh, so that was that was really disappointing. And the ones I've seen after that uh, haven't really excited me all that much either. I have to say. Well, yeah, I will I, say that. Oh, sorry, no, no, please, please, go on. I was just saying, I think expectations are also one thing with that film. If it was taken uh, completely out of out of, uh, or if it was you didn't know who the director was, which is obviously a bit pointless, uh, maybe in this discussion. But uh, obviously, I mean, I think that's it's going to acquire taste because of its uh, absurd comedy. But um, you know, I think obviously when he changed his name and after the films, obviously we, we skipped over Electric Dragon, uh, which is one of his his best best films and uh, there's this gap in there's this gap and then there's a film like that and i think uh a lot of people were probably expecting something else and uh maybe if it was a different time if it was now after i mean i've it's probably the only film that i've liked of his from from his name his name change i haven't liked any of them afterwards uh like like uh, tom but uh yes i think maybe if it was after all the other bad ones and it came out now maybe you people might like it a little more. I think the expectations really had uh, a lot to do with it. Uh, but 
I don't know. Maybe I maybe I, maybe I need to rewatch it again. To be honest, <laughs> maybe I won't like it again if, I, if I watch it. I do. I, I genuinely felt like I just didn't quite get it, and I think maybe if I did watch it again, I might get more from it. But at the same time, I don't think I have the time and energy to, <laughs> to watch it again. Um, you are right, though. I mean, I just jumped ahead because I realised there was one that you know stuck out to me. I mean, I I quite like his other two since the name change, but. Um, yeah, the, the the one I did watch was the Electric Dragon, eighty thousand volts, which is just one of the coolest fucking films I've seen in my entire life. I think it was just, I mean, I put in my tweet, I was like, the synopsis pretty much sells itself here. It says, a violent guitar playing, electrically charged boxer faces off against an electronic wizard half merged with a metallic Buddha, and that is literally the story. There's no kind of setting up these characters or you know you don't really need to know much about them apart from the fact that he plays plays guitar and he's a boxer and he's electrically charged there was a small flashback to him as a child getting hit by uh um or climbing an electric pole and getting electrocuted but apart from that it's just this amazing battle of wits and and strength let's not forget he's a reptile investigator Oh yes, <laughs> I'm so sorry, and that too. <laughs> See, there's so much there's, in there. There's, there's actually some logic in there. <laughs> well, I mean, that's that's one of the films where you know, very very intentionally, he went back to the punk style, uh, partially at the request of the producer, Mr. Sento, and um, and uh, you know, it's inevitable inevitable since he shot in black and white that it looks very Tetsuo like. You know, it's that that Tetsuo is also this this you know face off between two mutated, super powered men. Yeah. And uh, but at that point, it's sort of like you know, it's it's just accepted. This is the way. <laughs> this is the way his legacy has turned out, and he just embraces it. And uh, t- to be fair, um, uh, in uh, a few years ago, he did another. I did. He came back to that style twice. And I have not seen either of the films. And yeah. one of them was Punk Samurai Slashdown, which uh, is an adaptation of a novel by Ko Machida, who is an old pal of, of Ishii. He, he appears as the, the, the younger of the two bikers in Burst City, for example, and he's sort of like the, the extraterrestrial in August in the Water. Right. And... Um, he, he, who used to be a, a punk musician, leader of a band called Inu, and later became a quite a successful novelist. And that film was based on one of his novels, and it's sort of like an absurd, semi-fantastical um, uh, period samurai movie. Which I, it's, yes. again, I haven't I haven't seen it. Um, uh, it looks it looks like it looks fun and exciting. Um, but that's one it's of good. those things where, you know, he's he can always he can always fall back on his on his punk style, and be sure to find an audience there. So, it's, it's this is all something to do with you know what what Adam said about expectations. I think. Yeah, for sure. I wouldn't have connected Electric Dragon with Punk Samurai Slashdown though as being a, a return to that style. It was very I felt very different. I thought one minute I felt like I was watching um, Blade of the Immortal. You know, like one of these like Mikei Samurai films. And then the next I was watching like Kung Pao Enter the Fist, like this absurdist, you know, scatological farce. It, it, it's really batshit <laughs> crazy. Um, but yeah, there was so many big names in it, like Jun Kunimura and Shota Somatani and even um, your boy Ki, <laughs> Kiyohiko Shibakawa. Yeah. 
um, who's actually really, really funny in the film. He's he's one of the best parts in it. Um, but yeah, it's it's just crazy. It's it goes from very serious samurai violence to like bong jokes. There's like this giant wooden bamboo bong that he's smoking <laughs> weed out of, you know, and lots of like male nudity and like he's mooning the emperor and stuff like this and it almost felt felt like jackass or something it was very very strange very jarring but uh it's a fun watch for sure well worth checking I, out i think you know I, I, key is great in that film and i think the sort of some of the side actors are great but i think iano go is just such an awful actor and um he's he's just he ruins all the films that he's in. The, the lead actor. Um, yeah, I was going to say he's the lead, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. He's, he's just atrocious. And I, and that film, there's, there's, there are some great parts. And, and if you if you were to think about it, oh, that, it sounds so amazing. But then, uh, you know, when I actually sat down and watched it in the cinema, it was just like too long and too, like, these things should be amazing, but everything drags on for ages and it ends up being a bit boring, I thought, Uh you know, it shouldn't be, but but obviously that film, also that film had loads of production problems, and it ran over budget, and it was like really, really chaotic um, production. Uh, my my a friend of mine produced it, and it was just like I, he ended up in a hospital, uh, nearly, nearly dying because it was one of like the most chaotic productions that, that uh, has happened over the past few years in Japan. And you know, in the end, it was just sort of the, the film got made, and I think that's what everyone was happy with but it could have been a lot better i think if it was uh tighter and shorter and uh yeah, better edited um but yeah actually if you if we go talking about you know electric dragon um the 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 film that's that the, going back to the punk roots it would be yes sorry that's it because that was a film that i think a lot of people were really excited about after especially isn't anyone alive everyone that that uh that didn't like isn't anyone alive uh if when they went i mean in between there was there was a flower of shanidar and um uh, I think yes, that was just that one, and then uh, it, sorry, Dake was like the punk, bringing back the uh, punk black and white um, with with hints of color here and there, and uh, uh, that was that was yeah, that was also another film that has great moments, but as a whole, it's a bit uh, a bit uneven and uh, and a bit just trying to be punk, but but uh, maybe he's a bit too old to do what he used to be able to do is what what I felt about when I watched the film. But Key is Key Key is great in that and. Uh, and Key is great in, in Punk Samurai, and uh, and uh, yeah, I'm Key. Well, Key has has got a great. He's got a very Sogoishi type uh, energy to himself as an actor and as a person. So I think that's why it works so well. But Iono Go is also in Soridake, and Iono Go is killed that film as well. He's just not. He killed all the films he's in. He's just crap. <laughs> Blimey, strong <laughs> strong opinions. But yeah, no, I I find the most interesting thing about Key being that he seems to have really good relationships with all of these directors because they just use him time and time and time again. And I mean, he's he's rarely the leading man, but he's always a really interesting and intricate part of these productions. Yeah, because he's he's in a band as well, and he's a psycho Billy band, and like you know, I think there's a lot of connection between somebody like Silvoishi, uh, you know, that that punk mentality, and. Key is, you know, the, actually, if we're talking about Iona Go, I mean, uh, Iona Go is a proper prima donna, um, like Hollywood type style actor, and uh, he's a pain to work with. And Key is like the most humble guy, and uh, you know, even if, I mean, uh, I mean, like one of the best examples of him doing the film and the Mudship Sails Away, where he went and stayed at the actor's grandmother's house and was. Um, only got paid like something like like four hundred dollars for the whole entire film as a leading man, and was like eating like uh, 
hundred yen onigiri as like the only food he could get on set for the for the for the for the every day for the week. I mean, he'll just he's that sort of guy that that just he's just he's just a proper proper humble guy, and I think that's mm. why a lot of directors like him as well. But he he doesn't yeah. have the big name of Ayano Go. I mean, I remember working with him um, with Shion Sonui many years ago, and we were talking about um, I think it was Shinjuku Swan. Uh, or maybe another other film, and they were talking about casting, and I was like, "Look, you got to put Key as like one of the big names." And even so- Sono himself really wanted to put Key in there, but in the end, the producer wants Iona Go because he's the big, the big selling name. So that's what the producer got his name, and and that was uh, yeah Shinjuku Swan and maybe some other Sono films. And in this case as well, you know, when if you if you're making a big budget film like Punk Samurai, you need Iona Go to sell it but uh you know obviously if it was up to Soguishi it would be key so he puts key in on the side and uh that's that's usually how it goes it's just key's not mm. a big enough name very memorable though he's a yeah great part of the film he's great in Soridake as well I'll have to check that one out all right guys I've got a, a few more and I know we're going on a bit over an hour now but um I also saw uh, Dead End Run from 2003 this is another anthology so um uh-oh. Oh, Tom. <laughs> Tom's face there. Blimey. You're not a fan of this one, Tom. No, not at all. <laughs> no. That's, that, that's, that, was even, that was even before Isn't Anyone Alive. I think that's when it's yes, in between that, that was in the Dragon and Isn't Anyone Alive. Yeah. Yeah. I remember going to see it in the cinema in Tokyo and uh, just flabbergasted by how and there was just a complete lack of any sort of development of of the most basic idea. They just went in there. And, well, this is—I mean, this actually, this—you know, this. Well, this is looking at it at a positive side. What we're just talking about with someone like Ayano Go, who is now, you know, is now in Japan a bankable actor, and Key is not. But you know, twenty twenty-five years ago, well, let's say twenty years ago, um, you had Asano at the peak of his popularity, which was not the sort of mainstream stardom of that Ayano now has, but was large enough to to sell a film on. And uh, Nagase, Masatoshi, same. You know, they were the two lead actors from Electric Dragon. They were the two lead actors from Gojo. Um, and they're the two lead actors in Dead End Run. And so at the time, it was possible to set up film projects which were quite experimental uh, on the basis of having these two guys in your film and uh, mm-hmm. you know Asano and Nagase had that sort of like indie's edgy alternative spirit to them and uh, were actors in a way that perhaps you know other mainstream actors were not they had more of an edge to them and uh, well that period has also sort of passed neither of them now can you know, you cannot set up a film, I think, on the backs of, of either or both of them as lead actors now. So that was a, that was a pretty special period. And uh, but, uh, you know, unfortunately, uh, with with Dead End Run, that meant like the film wasn't, you know, they were able, they were able to set it up, I think, um, with Ishii's ideas and the two actors' involvement. And then. They didn't really elaborate it very well before starting to shoot the film. I mean, there's a bunch of ideas in there, but it's just like, you know, it's, it's like it slips through through everybody's fingers. It never comes together. Yeah, I think that's really fair. I mean, it, it's the one I watched last night, actually. And the opening 
I'll be honest, the opening section, I was like blown away, but I was like, oh, this is good. I was like, very ominous. It starts off a bit like um, Sabu's Dangdan runner with just him just sprinting through the streets and, and getting to this dead end. And and it, it reminded me of, you know, like the Terminator or something like that. You know, it, it felt very uh, dark and something was coming for him, but we didn't know what. And then all of a sudden it kind of turns into this weird zombie-like horror which i again i was i was there for i was like this is cool and then it went into a massive song and dance number like la la land or something and i was like is this going for like uh happiness of the catacolies type thing i'm not sure but i was completely spun out by it and then the second section called shadows starts exactly the same way pretty much goes right up to the end where there's just a, a standoff between a bunch of guys with guns and then they all just started laughing manically and hugging each other and being all friendly and jovial before all shooting each other and winding up dead. And again, like you said, Tom, it just the, the ideas were there, but I was just scratching my head going, I don't know what he's saying here or, or why. And then without without question, the final section was my favorite, which is the one with Asano in it, where he's he's basically a criminal who's chased to a rooftop by Jun Kunimura and, and some fellow detectives. And just the, the weird hostage situation that happens there but yeah very very strange set set of shorts and definitely nowhere near as effective as what i found from tokyo blood um but yes one more we had um a mirrored mind from 2005 which i think um is it uh, called kyoshin originally i think it was the original title um which was just incredible it's like a visual poem of I don't know. It reminded me of Kotoko going back to Sukumoto. It's kind of like this this depiction of um, mental health in crisis and and depression and and suicide and everything. It's it's just this amazing piece of work. And the second half was almost like this kind of hypnotic ASMR kind of meditation. Um, just again, really unexpected, real real change of pace. Another really cool performance by Key. Um, and uh, yeah, I don't know. It, I hope you've both seen that one. And if you haven't, it's well worth checking out because it's really cool. Personally, I don't remember. I might have seen it at the time and totally forgotten about it. Uh, yes, uh, I think I, I honestly don't. It it doesn't doesn't hasn't come back to me. I, I honestly don't remember it. So um, mm. I, I've I, I have nothing to say unfortunately on that. Well, I'll send you the link. It's only an hour long. Um, yeah, I think you'll like it. It was a it was a film that came out of the I don't know the Jeonju Film Festival in Korea. At the yes. same, it's from the same series as Tsukamoto's Haze. Yes, and every year they would that. every year they would invite three Asian filmmakers to do a twenty five minute short, which would be edited together into an omnibus, and then each filmmaker sort of retained the rights to their film, and and in some cases they did. Uh, like a longer version of it, which which Sogwishi did with with Mirrored Mind, and Otsukamoto also did with Haze. Yeah, and uh, so yeah, it's kind of um, you know it goes back to to um, his, his his sort of like his meditation and uh, and uh, healing healing your your mental damage movies of of the mid and early nineties, and. Uh, so uh, yeah, I know. I think it's something you just sort of have to connect with, in mm. a sense. 
and um, if you if you get the vibe, you're sort of you're you're into it all the way through. I think um, the way that I've been, you've seen me now. Like if you, <laughs> we've had two episodes together. You know what I'm like. I get obsessive about these things, and I dive in head first, and I watch as many films as I can of the director. And sometimes it it can be hard not to kind of rush through them and and take a step back and actually think about what you're watching and kind of deconstruct it a little bit. Um, and this one really helped me to kind of just take a take a breath, to be honest, because, yeah, I had just been powering through all his films and I was like, this one is really slow and really considered. And, yeah, it, it was really interesting. It spoke to me. Um, and, again, I did find it quite a, a tough watch because I have suffered from depression in my life and it is a quite a, a bleak, you know, look at depression. Um, but it, it's also kind of hopeful in, in a lot of ways. and. Yeah, I'm really, really, really impressed. So if anyone's listened to this and haven't seen that one, that's another one to definitely seek out. But then um, I definitely yeah, so recommend checking out I definitely recommend checking out Master of Shiatsu too if you're if you're into that. Yeah, that's for top sure. of my list. That's that's, uh, that's, that's gonna be my that's a real predecessor sure. to it. Beautiful. Um we talked about punk samurai slash down now, so there's only one more we haven't mentioned yet, and that was bitter honey. Um which uh, I was really excited about because it's basically um, uh, Fumi Nikaido and um, uh, Renosugi, who's, um, I, I just love both of them. And yeah, I, I actually really enjoyed this one. Have you, have you both seen this? Yeah, sorry, it's, be- it's a good looking film, but uh, I think I was just uh, a bit disappointed by it as a whole. Uh, same with maybe Sanadar as well. But I guess, you know, expectations are also something that uh, probably led to that. Uh, maybe I was expecting. Uh, a little more and uh you know that's yeah just expected more i think and uh maybe as a filmmaker as a whole maybe recently i i guess uh i have wanted a little more from him but uh i guess it can't be helped he's uh getting on <laughs> <laughs> i mean because it's about an old man an old uh author and artist who basically for lack of a better term he's, he's dying and creates this relationship with a woman who is manifested from a goldfish who is then haunted by the ghost of his ex-girlfriend who died and the goldfish and the ghost become friends. <laughs> and then, yeah, she basically becomes, the goldfish becomes cognizant and then starts to question her relationship with him, which he's kind of already manifested it in his own mind anyway. So it's almost like his own brain is, is turning against him. It's a really interesting kind of <laughs> way of looking at things. Yeah, sort of a film where you where you wonder whether it's you know it's the usual pattern of the old man and then having a fling with a young woman or whether that sort of un- tries to undermine that template or not. It's mm. kind of hard to tell. Yeah, yeah, I think that's what I put in my review, saying like it's really interesting, even though it still plays with within those constraints of the patriarchy and you know that that fantasy of the young girl with the older man. But yeah, I say like my journey through this man's films was a really interesting one, and like I said, I still have holes to fill, so there's still more. It'll be a sad day when I've seen them all, but um, yeah, it was just amazing. He's got his three hour long, uh, a three hour long film that he made with his students that he's that's that's uh, finished post production now. So that's his next one. It's uh, he's been making this film with his students because he's he's a teacher at university in. Uh, in Kyoto, and he has been for years. And uh, 
for the past few years, yeah, he's been making a film with his students in which he apparently stars in as well as some sort of Frankenstein monster or something. But uh, it's, yeah, it's over three hours long and uh, I'm looking forward to watching it myself. Uh, so he said it's very psychedelic. Uh, I guess we'll see within over the next uh, year or so uh, what it, what it's like. Nice. Well, yeah, I'll keep my eye out for it. Okay, well, as I mentioned earlier, we got a few questions from our followers on Twitter. So if you'll humor me, we'll just go through a few of those now quickly. Um, we got a really good question actually from Jonathan Root. That's at JL Root. Um, he's the lecturer and program leader for film studies at the University of Greenwich. He's a big fan of both of you. Uh, he says, I heard Adam mentioned on Facebook, um, and I'm curious to see why TOEI are difficult to work with for international distribution. And he also says, will this mean we won't see many more Ishii films get released in the UK in future? Which obviously we've kind of answered throughout the whole episode. But yeah, Adam, I don't know if you want to talk about TOEI and, and how they're difficult. Yeah, of course. I mean, a lot of the things we've talked about before is to do with music rights, but Toei and uh, this will probably have more to do with Punk Samurai. And the reason why it hasn't been to a lot of film festivals and hasn't been picked up for distribution is that Toei are just one of these big, big studios in Japan. And they have very old fashioned way of thinking and they charge, just charge a lot of money to, um, to even for a film festival wants to screen a film like Punk Samurai, they'd have to pay something like, let's say, $1,500 for one screening, which um, obviously, you know, maybe maybe that sounds too much or too little, depending on, but, um, you know, it's, it's, it's a lot of money to pay for one screening and uh, they, they, they will not uh, allow otherwise. And therefore, you know, film festivals can't play these sort of films. And uh, at the same time, distributors are often asked loads and loads of money to handle films that distributors like myself who would handle these sort of issue films can't afford. And... Therefore, it just makes it uh, impossible for, for to work with these companies. Uh, it, it's very unfortunate, but that's uh, why Punk Samurai and many other films handled by Toei are not allowed to be uh, or can't be seen at film festivals or released by distributors like me. Hmm. I suppose they come up so often as well because they're so big and prolific. You probably probably see them a lot. Yeah, it's it's unfortunate because it's not just Toei, but it's Toho, Toei, Kadokawa, and Shojuku, the big four Japanese studios. They all have these like old fashioned rules that are are very just out of touch with with the way that, that um the world is, unfortunately, because Japan is quite a different market. So they they uh, think that how it worked ten years ago is the way it should work today, even though you know Netflix and everything else has changed. So yes, it's just it's why I bang my head up against the wall nonstop, and I always have arguments with. Uh, them and it's why yes so many people can't see great japanese cinema in one way or another yeah no it makes a lot of sense um jonathan also asked actually he said um tom and adam have you got any recommendations for the japan touring film program that's going to be starting in the uk soon obviously most of these titles have already been released in japan i mean i've not actually personally seen any of them yet so but i'm looking forward to getting stuck in for sure yeah i mean i i just want to preface this by saying i am uh a little jaded, uh, as, as as you probably might have, have heard me speaking, uh, <laughs> you know, with Japanese cinema. But um, you know, for people that maybe aren't as uh, jaded, uh, you know, I think there's there's some decent films that are playing. Uh, to be honest, um, you know, maybe I, I think there could be better films, but it's just uh, you know, it hasn't been the best year of Japanese cinema. Though I would recommend, uh, especially Aristocrats, is a, is a great film. Um, Life Untitled is quite interesting. Uh, so very, very black comedy about the uh, about prostitutes. Uh, uh, Delivery Health Girls uh, is, is how it is. And um, <laughs> by a first-time female director. So uh, I think, you know, the film might seem quite misogynistic. And then you... But, uh, you know, it's it's all a female director and female cast. Um, 
Sound of Grass is quite interesting. Um, it won the uh, Eiga Geijitsu uh, Film of the Year. It was picked by them as a film of the year. It's quite quite a decent uh, film. Um, you know, yes, I do think that there it's not the the best overall. But I think for people that don't watch that many Japanese films, there's some decent films like that. Blue is quite decent. Uh, Yoshida Keisuke's film, uh, who did Intolerance, which is my film of the year, and um, it's that that's decent. I mean, uh, so so yes, I think. Uh, Everybody should just uh, watch as many as they can and make their own decisions as well, because uh, you know that that's uh, up to each and every person to decide. Uh, and don't listen to me, because if I speak honestly, I'll just be slagging off everything nonstop. So <laughs> right. everyone knows you by now, Adam. We're <laughs> we're up to speed on on you. No, yeah, that sounds awesome. I mean, I, I'm going to go see Aristocrats definitely. Um, and there was a screening of Nobuhiro Dori's The Voice of Sin as well, which is the other one that's coming to Cambridge near me. Um, I, also, I also just want to mention one more, actually. Um, the film that I produced, Low Life Love, the director Uchida Eiji, who produced, actually, uh, Life Untitled, the uh, film I was just talking about. But um, he made a sort of reverse piece, a sort of partner piece, partner film to Low Life Love called Shrieking in the Rain. Um, personally, I think it's too similar to Low Life Love, to um, be original, interesting on its own. But I think as a sort of partner piece, uh, it's a looking at, the, at uh, Low Life Love more from a female perspective. Um, and it's also, he's, he's got more money and, and uh, had more time on it. So it's, I do think that if anybody watched Low Life Love or would like to also see a film about uh, the, the, uh, the dirtier side of uh, the Japanese film industry, then, then that's one that they might want to watch. <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> that sounds right up my alley. Nice one. Um, there's also one more question here we got from uh, Will Marley, which is at underscore Marlu. He goes, I'm fascinated by Adam's approach of not watching films that he doesn't feel he might be able to distribute. Does he have a fear of missing out on any enjoyable experiences? Um, and just to clarify, does this only apply to Japanese films? <laughs> Yes, it does uh, only only apply to Japanese films. I mean, I watch a lot of other films, of course, and I I take more. Uh, I'm more, I guess, uh, more watching films pure, more as pure entertainment or pure for fun when it's not Japanese films. When I watch Japanese films, it does seem at times to be like work because I'm watching, you know, three hundred a year, and the majority of them aren't that interesting. And of course, yes, uh, this is probably in in regards to the fact that I didn't watch Drive My Car or Wheel of Fortune and Fantasy because, yes, uh, I wouldn't have had a chance to distribute them. And maybe I'm missing out on those, but there aren't that many in total a year that I'm missing out of. It would just be Drive My Car, Wheel of Fortune and Fantasy, and maybe a couple others. But, um, you know, it just does seem too much like uh, like work at times. And uh, if I had a little more free time, I w- I'd, I'd probably just watch like a an action film or uh, uh, some mindless entertainment, not a, a two or three hour long human drama from Japan because I see a bloody enough of them. Yeah, no, I get it. And I mean, you'll get round to these films eventually, right? You know, it'll, it'll become a point. You'll see it on TV or something or pick up a Blu-ray, I'm sure. I might, but uh, if I had that time, I'd really watch uh, uh, an American action film uh, just just to to, to give myself a little break, to be honest. Fair enough. I mean, there's one more here. It's not really a question, but I couldn't not include it. It's uh, from Peachy Joe on Twitter. Big fan of yours. She goes, will Ben be getting a gold star for his tireless research over the past few days? <laughs> You've been a movie watching fiend for this episode. Most podcasts address one film. You guys look at an entire filmography. I can't wait to hear it. 
So uh, and thank God you 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 are because uh, you know you know myself and Tom. I mean, obviously we watch these films over years, and and Tom has got a much better memory than I do. But um, to be honest, it, I forgot so much of of uh, of the films that we do talk about. So thank God you really put all the effort in uh, and and a very fresh. Uh, I'm talking about these things, trying to bring back memories from 20 years ago. But uh, you are fresh and passionate, and uh, yeah, it does keep the conversation going on. <laughs> Well, I appreciate that. I did feel like I was rambling a bit this episode, but yeah, no, that's uh, that's good to hear, and I love it. You know, it's never a chore; it's always a pleasure. Well, that, luckily, I hope uh, that that uh, it stays consistent, and uh, we don't <laughs> run into some directors who have a lot uh, worse film- filmography. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure we'll be fine. Well, don't take our I mean, word that... for it. Yeah, exactly. Thank you. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> I mean, we've been just, we've been discussing here a filmmaker who was basically ignored and considered uninteresting by a generation of of critics and and uh, and programmers and gatekeepers before us. So, you know, there's inevitably going to be young writers and and critics and what have you coming along that are going to find in films today what things that we do not see in them. So, you know, by by all means, disagree with us. That is very well said. I think it's a very <laughs> good, a very good point to uh, to close off this this month's episode. <laughs> Does that mean you're going to have me on again next time? <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm kidding. Yeah, well, yeah. Let, let's go for the hat trick. Um, well, what what do we have next month, Adam? It's um, what what release are we covering? Yeah, so next month is, uh, I think, yes, uh, uh, especially one or two films, uh, Funky Forest and Warp Forest. Uh, one especially that I think people have been waiting for a very, very long time because it's been uh, out of print. It was never released in England and originally released on DVD only, Funky Forest, and uh, way out of print. One of those films that I think has has spawned so many... Uh, memes and the such uh because it's got so many absurd visuals and it, it's it's just a totally weird and absurd film that i'm i think a lot of people still haven't seen as well so uh, i'm really happy to finally be getting it out there and with loads and loads of of um brand new extra features um i worked together with uh, the american company aero 4444 on uh on this and we managed to pool all, all our time and efforts to um, making new audio commentaries, uh, getting all the original bonus features, including director's cut, uh, deleted scenes of, of the film and the such. And uh, it's a fantastic release, partnered with a film that I don't think many people have seen, actually hardly anybody has seen, which is its sort of sort of quasi-sequel, um, The Warp Forest, which is by uh, Miki Shinichiro, who, made one of the, who was one of the three directors from Funky Forest. And... Uh, it's a film that he put all of his life savings to making a film that was never actually released even in Japan in cinemas. Uh, nobody, it never, it played a few film festivals, never released in, in cinemas in Japan, never released on video anywhere. So it's the first video release of the film ever. Plus, we've made a new audio commentary, got the director to re-edit the making of footage that he hasn't seen himself in uh, in 10 years since its release. And uh, yeah, it's a, a fantastic little com- combi pack. So um, there's lots of talk about. And uh, yes, I'm looking forward to, to talking about that with you. Mate, oh yeah, you sent me uh, both of the check discs for these ones. Um, and I'd seen neither of them. And my God, they are so cool. I mean, like you said, especially Funky Forest, that one... Just yeah, sent me wild. 
and I even sent you a video of my um, my fiance. She was doing the dance, wasn't she, on the beach? And you were like, "That's actually pretty good because it, it was all improvised in in the scene as well." And yeah, it's yeah. just brilliant. There's bonus this, feature um, for the podcast as well. Uh, your wife's yeah. dancing. To... <laughs> uh, I think she would cancel the wedding. But um, yeah, <laughs> yeah, no, it, they, these films are epic, and I can't wait to chat about them with you. Well, Tom, if you want to come on and talk about those two, you're more than welcome to. <laughs> I, I, have, I haven't seen either one, so you can leave me out then, I guess. Seriously, though, thank you so much for coming on for a second time. Um, we really appreciate it. It was a pleasure talking to you again. And mm, yeah, yeah, likewise. You're welcome. I, yeah, I, I love hearing your commentaries. And I know, I think Adam said that there's none really in the pipeline for this year at, at the moment, but I, I hope you guys get to work together again at some point for my own selfish sake. I hope so too, yes. (laughs) So as before, everyone, if you want to follow Tom on Twitter, he's at at MidnightMez, which uh, hopefully he'll be more active on it now. Now I'm going to stop bothering him with tagging him in every single post I put up (laughs) for the the last couple of weeks. Um, Yeah. Uh, You've also got Adam over at at Third Window. And uh, yeah, I'm at BenjiBox, spelt with a Y. But yeah, that's it. Thank you for listening in again. And uh, yeah, we will see you next month on the Third Window Films podcast. Two flights up by the third window from the right. Two flights up by the third window from the right. The third window from the right. Two flights up, that's the one with the shade pulled down, that's the one where